So welcome and happy Friday. Today is Friday, September the 2nd. So this is our first Q&A for the month of September. This is questions and answers for Backyard Beekeepers, episode number 173. I'm Frederick Dunn, and this is The Way to Be. So thank you for being here today and joining me and spending all your valuable time learning hopefully something new about honeybees. What we're doing is we're talking about topics that were presented to people over the past two weeks this time, because last week I didn't do a Q&A. I did a walkabout in my yard to show you all the different pollen and nectar resources that the bees are using right now. So if you haven't seen that, maybe check out last Friday's presentation. I wasn't sick, nothing happened, nothing's wrong. Um, I just opted to do that because it took me all day to make that short film. And today we're back on track with questions and answers. So it is 79 degrees Fahrenheit outside, which is 26 degrees Celsius. And uh, it's pretty sunny, so not optimum, not terrible, and we still need more rain, as does, as do most of the people around the world. So if you want to know what we're going to talk about today, please look down in the video description down below. And item by item, you're going to see the topics for today. If you want to know how to ask your own question, please follow the link down in the video description that takes you to my website, The Way to Be. Dot org and there's a way to be page there that has a form that you can fill out. Someone wrote uh, this past week and asked how they submit a question. It wasn't clear. Now you can take your chances and write your comments and questions uh, underneath videos that are out on YouTube already. And most of these actually came via that way. And uh, I'm happy to look those over. If you submitted a question and I don't discuss it, uh, it may be one that either may not apply to a lot of people or the other part is we've answered the question so frequently that I'm going to have to leave you hanging while you go and find it in my other stuff. So how do we find the other videos that are related to this whole series? Well, it's a playlist. So I'm also going to put the playlist link down below. So you can look at that and it has them from the very beginning until now. That's a lot of Fridays, 173. In fact, there's more than that. Those are just the ones that get numbered for Q&As. Anyway, you're probably wondering, why don't we get started? Good idea. First question comes from Brenda. I can't pronounce the last name. Wideven, Wideven, W-Y-D-E-V-E-N. Can't find an area to ask a question on your website, so I'll ask here. Is there such a thing as too many full frames of pollen? My horizontal top bar hive has six bars of fully drawn pollen and then brood frames, then honey. I did put a couple of pollen frames in between some brood, but will they need all this for winter? And should I put it closer to the honey in winter or pull some out? Combs are a little larger than Langstroth frames. Okay, so here's the thing. I'm glad this question was asked because a lot of people are looking at their hives and they're looking at the way the resources are. And I'm getting a lot of questions about provisioning your hive and how to sort things out. One thing I would like to share and would like people not to do is what's described here, which is we have frames of brood. So we know that the bees build their brood near the entrance and so they organize those frames, draw those combs out. And uh, then, of course, they lay their eggs and they have open brood, capped pupae, and everything else. The bees are telling us what that organization should be. And sometimes with larger frames, you'll see everything on a single frame. 
So down low, you might see brood. Then you'll see some little rings of pollen resources, which are the protein sources for the bees, which of course come from flowers. They make their bee bread, they feed that to the bees. And then beyond that, we have the energy, the resource that comes from honey. So that's their carbohydrate, often on one frame. But here's the thing. Then as we progress away from the entrance, doesn't matter really which direction, although mine tend to begin their brood resources at uh, the eastern, southeastern corner of a hive, and they work their way west. So then what we do is look at that, and we see that we've got, in this case, a big frame of pollen, possibly nothing but pollen, and that happens from time to time. Hopefully it's a bunch of different colored pollen, too, because then we know that the plant resources are diverse, and that's what we want. We want them to be feeding on a buffet of a variety of different resources so they get a much more balanced diet. And this is for the critical bees that are coming up, winter bees. Please don't take a frame of pollen, spread apart frames of brood, and put that frame of pollen in between them. Now they will certainly try to clean that up. They will certainly try to work that quickly. But what we just did is we have a face of brood, a face of brood, and they're right together with bee space in between. How much is bee space? Three-eighths of an inch. So that bee space is there, and here comes the beekeeper. Move the brood here, move the brood here, stick pollen in between. And now the bees have to provide twice the number of bees to warm the brood on this side and warm the brood on this side, where before a single complement of brood workers, those are the nurse bees inside the hive, could have easily provided insulation in that area and warmed both sides at once. So I highly recommend not splitting brood and putting resources or new frames and things like that in between brood frames. So that out of the way, is this too much pollen? No, it really isn't because how much pollen do bees use? Now this is kind of a loose, you know, average, but a full face frame of pollen gets consumed to produce a full face frame of new larvae, so new brood. So from start to finish, third day the egg hatches out, it emits a pheromone that gets the nurse bees to start feeding it, and the nurse bees are the ones that work the pollen, they're the ones that consume it, and then they recycle that back in the form of royal jelly at the beginning, and then they feed them other resources as they go on. The only one that gets royal jelly throughout its development would be the queen. So anyway, they feed many cycles through the day, and so the pollen dwindles away, and of course the brood grows, and then that brood gets replaced by new brood, and on it goes. So they can actually go through your pollen really fast. So what you think might be a lot of pollen, uh, really probably isn't. And then I have to ask this question, why did we want to rearrange it in the first place? Just because it seems like they consolidated too much pollen together, and then there's honey beyond that. Uh, the bees can organize things themselves. In fact, until the honey cells get capped, they can unload honey cells and restore that in other parts of the hive, making it more convenient for the nurse bees. So once again, their entire arrangement in the hive is to make things convenient for the nurse bees. And of course, looking ahead to wintering, that's why then they store their honey resources outboard of that. So really think carefully about why you need to rearrange resources, especially this time of year. Now we're in September. Uh, they're getting their last resources and that's going to be it. So I recommend not rearranging and not pulling some out either because they'll consume the pollen through the middle 
they consume 48 hour pollen first. So fresh pollen first and then there are other resources. Let's say we get a series of storms, three or four days of storms. Then the resources that are in the hive are what the bees are going to use. We would like to avoid having to supplemental feed our bees if at all possible. So that's my advice on that. Because the other thing is, do, are they warming their hives on a day like today right here at 79 degrees Fahrenheit outside? Are they warming the brood? Do they really need that convenience of being able to insulate between those frames and then of course keep their brood warm? They do because 94 to 97 degrees, that's brood temperature. So they need to move air through there to provide them with fresh air, of course, but also they need to keep things warm and humid. Let's not rearrange things unless they're starting to look honey bound or something like that, then I understand. If they've brought in a lot of nectar, they're filling all the open cells and your queen looks like she's running out of space to lay, then I would take a new frame of drawn comb, I would put it at the edge of the brood so you can move your pollen out one, put the brood, the new frame down there that you want them to either draw out or use those extra cells next to brood, not replacing existing brood, unless it's all wall-to-wall -wall honey by then, then it won't matter. But when we're manipulating actual brood, I wouldn't split it. Spent a lot of time on that answer. We had a lot to get through today. Question number two comes from John in Grand Haven, Michigan. Do, 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 do. Here's a question for you. It says, I was doing an inspection on one of my hives and saw a bee with a yellow dot on the thorax fly out of my hive. I was concerned it was the queen. On inspection, I found the queen with her longer abdomen, but also numerous other workers with yellow on their thorax. Is this just pollen on the bees? that can't brush themselves. It is strikingly yellow, just like the marking paint. Can the bees reach the back of their thorax with their legs? Thanks for sharing all of your knowledge. Okay, so here's the thing. And actually, this time of year, every year, this is funny, I get the same question. So yeah, it's pollen, it's tightly adhering pollen. And the other part of this is you would think that a honeybee would be able to groom 100% of its body and uh, they can't. So actually they end up with not so much a dot on their thorax, but it sometimes looks hourglass shaped. And that's why it comes across because they sweep with their middle legs and everything and they reach across their thorax and it makes this arc, which leaves an hourglass looking bit of pollen on their back. So who grooms that off? Other bees, other bees that are grooming things. So if you're seeing sometimes white or pale yellow, and it almost looks like chalk on your bees, uh, it's pollen, which is pretty interesting. And it does alarm new beekeepers, and it's always fun because I have a ready answer for that. I used to have pictures of them, but I can't find those right handy for today. So anyway, question number three, moving on. This comes from Scott, Fort Collins, Colorado. Our city has begun fogging for mosquitoes due to West Nile virus. They use Aquaperm-X, which is permethrin and piperonyl butoxide. Okay, I'm just butchering that. Anyway, it's dispensed by truck and a truck-mounted fogger. I've closed my hive entrance down to an inch. Do I need to somehow fully close the entrance on fogging nights? It's been very hot and the bees are usually still bearding some at dusk and when fogging is scheduled to begin, there is no way to opt out of fogging. Thanks. 
So, well, it's an insecticide, that's for sure. So here's the thing. Uh, the good news is that wherever Scott lives, they're doing it at night. That's the best time because your bees are not foraging. But that's not the end of the story because this fog goes out. Now, I understand they want to get rid of all the mosquitoes and everything, but it does have the potential to impact other insects. And that's not information coming just from me. But I want to kind of explain the risk. You know, is it limited risk? Some places are really good and they will allow beekeepers. So always check in with your agriculture extension office or sometimes called a field office. If you check in with them, they may have the opportunity for you to get on a list to opt out of being sprayed. So that's what this opt out reference is and not allowed where Scott is. So the good news is coming at night, landing at night, that's better because it's the target specimen, the target species would be mosquitoes. And of course, we know that they're in damp pools, puddles, any place, wetlands and things like that. So there's a concentration areas for the sprays too. And it really matters how much the wind and stuff plays in spreading it farther uh, than the target zone when the trucks come through. And uh, so residential areas and things like that usually are high focal points because the whole point is to keep the mosquitoes from biting people and spreading the disease. Now, don't take my word for it. For those who want to know more, there will be a link by this question number three to the Michigan State University explanation about that. And it puts into perspective what some of those risks are. And of course, uh, surprisingly, the residue on plants can subsist for days. So your bees can get that exposure. The thing is, it would have to be on plants that your bees are using for pollen or nectar or both. And so during that time frame, when it's still active on the plants, for example, what's going to wash it away? Rain. So if we have a lot of a big long dry spell after they've sprayed, the opportunity for your bees to encounter that increases. Now, if it rains within a couple of days, good news for the bees, because that's going to wash most of it off the plants. And then it still is effective on the mosquitoes where they're developing their larvae in water. So anyway, if you want to know more about that, I don't recommend closing up your bees in the middle of the night because you're really not going to do anything. Uh, the bees don't fly at night. They can't see it to navigate at night. And unless that spray drifts on a very windy night and actually physically gets on your bees, I think the risks are much lower. But for those who want to know more, I've provided that link. But my bees, I would let them still uh, vent, beard, everything else. The, the bees that are on the outside of your hive uh, would be the older bees. Your critical bees are the ones that are inside in the brood area. So maybe that helps too in your thinking. Question number four comes from Stefan Davio. Any recommendations for how you built your robbing station? I like the idea and I have a few five foot T posts. Thanks for all the videos. Okay. So a robbing station is a good time for this to come up because I've, you know, sometimes I call it a robbing station. I also call it a feeding station. And the reason I call it that is because when I take uh, supers off of hives or frames out of hives that we're going to extract honey from, I draw away the robbers from my apiary by putting out a feeding station, slant robbing station. And that gives those foragers something to work on, gives me cleaner resources as far as the drawn comb and everything. They're going to clean them up really good for you. Uh, there are a couple of options here that I'll talk about before I just go exclusively to a robbing station. So we'll talk about 
um, you can put your frames back on the same hive that you took them off of. So if you've pulled off a honey super and you've extracted all the honey, let's say it's a medium box and it's a 10 frame box. And once you've extracted, I recommend you do this on many of your hives at once, like do an extraction day. Put all of your hives on equal footing. And so then you pull them all off. Now put them back on the same hives that you took them off of. Let them clean them up over the next 24 to 72 hours, take them back off, and then now you're starting to prep for winter. And then they'll use the lower boxes for their resources for wintering. Uh, the other part of that is if you don't want to put them back on your hives, uh, you can take them, and I do this with flow supers also. I don't necessarily put them back on the hive I took them off of, depending on at what point I've actually done the harvesting, because here's what happens. We have a lot of time. We're in September right now. So if we extract it this week and put them all back right now, you can put them right on the hives that you took them off of, right? But a lot of people pull the boxes and then they put them in storage. Some people put them in what's known as a hot room. Other people are just storing them in their garages for now because what they like to do is get all their boxes together. Then they're waiting for a weekend because a lot of beekeepers have jobs. And they like to do it all at once, which can now happen in the second or third week of September. And we don't necessarily want to disrupt the hives anymore. So that's when we have this robbing station and this feeder station. That's also when the competition among colonies increases. So if we're opening a colony to put hives back on just to have them clean it up that late in the game, we're also providing an opportunity for robbers to attack the hive. So these are judgment calls based on your apiary and what's going on in your area because the wasps are also picking up their activity levels. So the robbing station, I like to put it downwind of the hives. And I have a new robbing station location now actually, and it is, I'm just going to guess that it's, you know, 120 yards out. And now it's on the edge of the woods. And uh, what I get to do there is, of course, observe the other insects that come to the robbing station because it's not just going to be your honeybees. It's also my feeding station if I needed to provide some kind of emergency open feed, but I'll talk about that too. But they'll clean up your bees in just a couple of days. Clean up your bees. They'll clean up your frames, your hive, your components in just a couple of days. Then you can, of course, put them in your winter storage situation. Now, when it comes to open feeding... I would open feed there also, but this is the thing that I did. I don't know if it was last year or the year before, but I started thinking, am I open feeding my own bees? What's going on? Am I feeding my neighbor's bees? So when I put them out and I took frames of uncapped honey frames and I hung them on frame supports so I could see everything. And then I put them out for robbing, and of course, bees descended on them right away, and they were just loading. You could not see the frames. The other thing is, while they're robbing, notice how organized they are. They don't just spread out, like, I'll get this, you get that, let's get all this stuff and get out of here. What they do is they cluster together, and they move across like cattle grazing across a field in a row. I don't know why they do that, but it made it easy for me to get that little dense pack of bees that's eating everything that's in those frames, and I hit them with powdered sugar. Then I can see where they flew to. I can see if I'm feeding my bees or if I'm feeding my neighbor's bees. And you know what? They flew to the northeast, right through the woods. I was feeding my neighbor's bees. So what did I do? Stopped feeding them. 
so I don't open feed anymore, but I do let them rob. I don't care whose bees are at my robbing station. I know some people are going to say, high risk of disease transfer. Maybe they'll be sharing varroa mites and things like that. But to me, it's worth that risk in comparison to having those bees, wherever they're coming from, attacking my weaker colonies and potentially robbing them out or just having this big melee on the landing board and having a bunch of dead bees. Because even a colony that successfully defends itself loses a bunch of guard bees and there's a bunch of dead honeybees there. So if I can draw them off by open feeding, even though I'm feeding mostly my other, you know, my neighbor's stuff, I have uh, taken the pressure off of over here. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about that more, but my feeding stations, the other thing is I elevate them. Now there's a practical end to that for me because I do videos and uh, feeding stations are also where I've done my water tests. I've done sea salt tests to see what the bees prefer. I've done feeding tests. So honeybee healthy, pro sweet, pro health. Um, so beekeeper's choice and whether or not bees go after different mixes that are designed as appetite stimulants, or if they just go after plain sugar syrup of the same mixture without those additives, what do they do? So now see it's at this level. So it's easier for me as a videographer to go ahead and document that. So it's elevated. Another reason that elevated feeding stations are helpful is because skunks can't get to them. Raccoons can't feed on them. And uh, so other animals that would come and try to, of course, go after the resources that you put out, because let's be honest, we put out the sugar syrup at the end of the year after you've drawn off your honey supers. And uh, if so, other animals are coming after that, uh, it, it's beneficial to have them off the ground. So the other thing is you're not tending them on the ground. Now, these are small scale. I mean, I don't put out five gallon pails, you know, 50 you know, five gallon drums. These are small feeders. And uh, so they're a quart a piece, some of them. If I'm using the, oh look, I just haven't had one. This is a B-Smart feeder. I've made videos of them. Now this is the one that sits on top of your hive on that inner cover. And of course you have to have a medium super around it to accommodate this thing, but these hold a gallon. And this is the new one, so the tank on top doesn't compress. But anyway, they have different bottoms for these. So they've got a base for this is for open feeding. Uh, so it's an opportunity to take care of your bees, draw them away and feed others. Now, if you do the powdered sugar test and your bees fly right to your apiary, that's great news because now you are open feeding and you're feeding your own bees and you're keeping them out of each other's entrances. So I hope that response wasn't all over the chart, but your feeding station convenient. It's also where I can put out a full super, put it on the rack out there. I put a lid on it so it's weatherproof. So the rain doesn't go through it. And I just leave the medium supers on the rack, all the frames in it. So in a super, and then the bottom is wide open and the bees come in from underneath and they feed on it that way. So it's very easy. Several of my videos show that feeder, but uh, that's what I do. And, uh, you know, the farther away from probably your apiary, the better, but uh, downwind is good. If it's upwind, then it draws the bees through your apiary on their way to the feeder. That's why I made that decision. Question number five. This is from Tomahawk Missile. That's the YouTube channel name. Tomahawk, Harpoons, Terriers, Tartars, SM1s, SM1ERs. 
So I wonder if this is a Navy guy. Anyway, here a question I have, but never heard anyone talk about. What is this, the reason some bees are gray? Could this be the winter bees? Okay, and that's a very simple question. And I think what's being described, because if you have a question like this, you could, of course, send a picture or show me a, a link where the picture could be viewed. But I think what we're talking about, because they do look silver gray, the newly emerged worker bees are extra fuzzy. Their, their hair looks silver and they have more of it and they do look dramatically different. Those are brand new, freshly emerged worker bees in your hive. That's what I'm 99.9% .9 sure that this question deals with. And sometimes they actually fly out with swarms. I noticed those soft-bodied little fuzzy bees in with swarms this year more than in the past. And previously I had always thought that since they're not tough enough, like they don't even sting you. If you go onto, you know, the frames of brood and the nurse bees are all there, they're all pushovers. You can poke your fingers around to get them out of the way. They're very hesitant to sting. They're not very tough. They're not ready for guard duty on the landing board, for example. And I've thought most often that they don't fly and that's because they don't know where they live. Like they've not been outside. You dump a bunch of them in a pail the bees that have been outside fly right out of the pail, go back to whatever hive they came from, and then another cluster just remains in the pail because they don't know what to do, and those are the youngest bees from your hive. So I highly suspect these are brand new nurse bees. And if I'm wrong, maybe somebody else has an idea for silver bees. But the other thing is the fat-bodied winter bees. This question comes up a lot. How do I tell which ones are the fat-bodied winter bees? We can't tell by looking at them. Uh, the only way to find out and you need a microscope is to dissect them and look for the extra fat storage areas on their bodies because it's inside the exoskeleton we can't see it and i'm not sure if you can even measure their physical dimensions if you had some kind of micrometer where you could really get in there uh would those be your fat-bodied winter bees or maybe just bigger bees because i listened to a talk from dr tom seeley recently and the bees are actually getting smaller overall on their own than they were back in the 70s. Very interesting stuff. That's totally off the mark, but we can't look at bees and just know, oh, look, those are fat-bodied winter bees. So it has nothing to do with their colors. But newly emerged bees, yeah, they're often silver, blonde, fuzzy head to toe, and uh, that begins to mature and rub away quickly. Next question, number six, comes from Christy, Quebec City, Quebec. I'm also in zone four and just got started with Flow Hive in July with a nuke from a local beekeeper. He is commercial though and not super helpful. So far they occupy seven frames. I've been feeding two to one syrup with honeybee healthy in it. This has attracted ants and yellow jackets, which I battle according to your good advice. And the guard bees seem to be in control. Pollen is going in at 10 plus per minute. In my first inspection two weeks ago, I saw larvae of all sizes and everything looked healthy. I'm so worried right now about swarming. I put a nuke box in a nearby tree with some blank frames in. I'm not sure if that was a good idea. Let me stop on the nuke box as a, a swarm trap just in case they swarm with just empty frames in it. That's not very appealing to the bees. If you have old comb that you're about to get rid of, there's a great reason to save 
old comb that you're pulling out of your hives, by the way, that really dark coffee-colored comb. You know what I'm talking about? That you might be getting rid of because it's just old and so dense and hard and everything else. Great resource to put in your swarm traps. But if you've only got brand new frames, then I recommend the scrapings that you get out of your hives. Whether it's the scrapings of the burr comb or whether you're scraping away some propolis while you're getting your frames evened up and your box edges evened up so they make a good tight seal. Save that in baggies. Put that inside your swarm traps to help attract swarms. It smells like it's been occupied by bees before. It's just as good as using something like Swarm Commander in there or lemongrass oil. So now that that's out of the way. I see some yellow jackets going in and out. Yeah, they're exploring everything because the yellow jackets are intense and they need resources right now. Secondly, I'm not sure if I should provide more space this time of year. I'm going to stop on that and say in Quebec, Canada, I would not add more space this time of year. I have a wax dipped Miller feeder that I plan to fill with dry sugar and maybe that Hive Alive Patty. Okay, so these are two different things. And that's why I'm stopping at this point. Uh, for those who watch me, I like to encourage them to have an emergency resource on top of their inner cover. I would also like that inner cover to be insulated. Now, you can put a wrapped around feeder on there, which is what these are. This is a wrapped around feeder. Here's your inner cover. There's a hole in the center of it. This sits right on top. These feeders are designed for liquid or dry sugar. So pull this off when we're not doing liquid. You sprinkle your dry sugar in the reservoir here. The bees come up through the center. They go over the top. They get into the sugar. They go back down. And then this cover goes over the top of that. So this closes everything off. And then you can have insulation also above this, which a lot of people are doing, which is a great idea. Now, that said, that's in place of the Hive Alive fondant. So if you're using this, you don't need the fondant. If we don't use this, take your packet of Hive Alive fondant, which I used last year. It comes completely sealed. You cut a little circle in it, just a little larger than the hole going up through the center of your inner cover. You put the packet right on there, you're set. It's an air, it's a vapor barrier. It's an emergency resource, so hopefully you've also left honey and other resources on your colony. And then uh, they'll stop and they'll be able to consume that. And the other question I had last year was whether or not the bees would even consume every edge to this, this packet of Hive Alive fondant. Will they get to all the little corners? Yeah, they did, because I left them on even uh, when spring hit because they had only used like half or a third of what was available in the fondant. I wanted to see if they would use it up. So those are options rather than both together, one or the other. And if I were given the choice between the two, personally, I'm not going to be putting the dry sugar on. You can, it's carbohydrate. It also acts kind of as a desiccant when some condensation gets up through that hole and condenses onto the sugar and kind of turns it into a sugar brick on its own. So you don't have to make a sugar brick, you just pour it in there and it comes that way. And it's also something that the bees use water inside the hive for when they get up in there because they need water to metabolize dry sugar. So it's a win-win on that. Now, if you're not using that, the fondant, which stays moist all year long, it stays in that packet except for the little hole that you cut, uh, 
did very well for my bees last year. Fantastic. That's what I'm using on all the hives that can accommodate it. My Layens hive doesn't have any room for it. Okay, so that's those two things. It's one or the other. And then above that, it says, I made a screened bottom box filled with wood chips to absorb moisture. Is that a good idea? Okay, for some people, what we're kind of describing here is a quilt box. There's another one that's called the Vivaldi board, which also vents through there. And then this slows air travel through there and provides an absorbent. But guess what? When insulation absorbs moisture, it no longer insulates. So I've, I have to be honest and say I've never used a quilt top, a quilt box. I've never used the Vivaldi boards. Um, so up above what, what is being described here, I would just have an insulated cover. I wouldn't have a rigid foam board insulation that the bees do not have direct contact with. So, here I'm looking around again. Sorry about that. So last year, this is what I put on all the hives. Yes, I have it handy. The other thing is these little nibs that stick off on these. This is the Bee Smart Designs insulated inner cover. It has the polystyrene thing. You have the option to vent it. I don't vent it. So I put this insulation on here and guess what the bottom is? It's a hard plastic. That's good because your bees will not try to chew this. If you just took this piece of insulation, polystyrene, and put that directly over and your bees have contact with it, they can chew it. I've seen bees chew right through it. Bees that have had access to your insulated outer cover, I like the B-Max outer covers because they're rigid, they're tough, and they're a good insulation value. I believe this is about an R, a, probably an R5 in here. If it's up to two inches, that would be R10. So I'm just guessing on that part of it. But these caused my bees to consume very little honey and resources through the winter. I put my Hive Alive packs on these and not one colony, regardless of its size, consumed all of the Hive Alive and none of them starved. So insulation, hard surface, bees not having access to the polystyrene because they'll chew it. They think it's pulpy wood and they'll excavate that stuff in their attempt to propolize it as well sometimes. <clears throat> so no, I don't personally put the wood chips and things like that above. I give them that solid barrier. The cluster ends up right against that. It's insulated, so it's maximum reflection of their own body heat. Also, condensation is not an issue because the condensation forms where the dew point happens on the interior surface of the sidewalls of the hive, and that's where they get the water that they need to survive winter. Moving on. Uh, above that will be the flow hive roof, which I sealed up inside and out. That's airtight. Great idea because the flow hive gabled roofs, I'm insulating those this year if I use them on a hive because I've pulled my flow hive roofs off and I've been using the B-Max polystyrene outer covers, outer roof. But if you want to keep that, definitely insulate it. Make sure no vapor passes through there because wherever air travels, it's going to encounter a dew point at some point and it's going to condensate. There will be condensate inside your flow hive roof. <clears throat> Those are not designed for cold weather. 
So uh, I think beekeepers do that here. Should I keep snow off of the hive? No. Let snow build up all over your hive. Snow is a fantastic insulator. It traps air. Air becomes the insulator. And then you know that right up against your hive is 32 degrees. 14 below everywhere else, but where the snow is banked up against your hive, it doesn't get any colder than the snow. <clears throat> Should I wrap the hive with some sort of insulation? These are all options that become personal choices. I don't wrap my hives. And she says that I think beekeepers do that here. Beekeepers that are regional, that are local to you, are your best source of information for how they've been getting their bees through winter. And you want to talk to the beekeepers that actually get their bees through winter, see how they're configured, see where the hives are positioned, if they're sheltered from wind, do they face south, what do they do? It's great to look at them. And then it says here, put a tent on it with an open side. Personally, I don't want a tent around anything because the next time we get a massive blow, a big storm coming through, now I have to worry about the tent collapsing. So I don't do that. Mine are in the open. I do have a hedge that breaks up the wind, doesn't completely stop it, just diffuses wind going across. But we've had winter storms with 70 mile an hour blasts of wind. And that's also another time when I like to see the snow right up against the hives because that's a barrier that protects your hives from wind as well. So it's a win-win. <clears throat> and that's it. So I'm also going to provide a link uh, for those who have flow hives that want to see how I configure flow hives through the year and how they prepare for winter. I have another video coming up where I'm going to show what I'm doing in that regard. Moving on. Question seven. David Dumont. I have a question, if you will. <clears throat> We're in a dearth at this moment. I tried the rapid round hive top feeder and it caused robbing right away. So now I'm open feeding a thousand feet away. This idea about robbing being caused right away. If you're putting a feeder on a hive, usually the hive is struggling and they don't have the resources that they need. There could be other issues regarding why that hive can't defend itself. The number one thing I'm going to ask people when they say they have problems preventing robbing on a hive, they have a queen in there. Is the hive otherwise healthy? Do you have an entrance reducer on this time of year? A 3 8 inch high, 2 to 3 inch wide entrance might even be too big for a small colony. Three eighths inch high by inch and a half. You know what my guide is? My limit on the entrance is this clean out tool. So that's the width of the opening so that in the wintertime I can get this in and I can pull out dead bees to make sure they don't block the entrance. So this is also my guide. That's why I need inch and a half to two to three inches wide, three eighths inch high, smaller opening for the smaller population of bees in the hive. But if you're queenless, I found out that bees that have lost their queen tend to not be very good at defending the hive. So there are other reasons why your bees may not have the heart, you know, for lack of a better description, they may not have the heart to defend the hive. They don't have a queen, they don't have brood, they don't have something that uh, is important enough to defend. And if they're getting through the guards on the landing board, up through the brood areas, up through the honey super, and into a hive top inside feeder. Now, if there's an upper entrance 
or something like that, that's the problem. But because the, they can get in that upper entrance and get right to that feed and get right out because bees that are robbing don't like to fool around. So it doesn't say it in here, but if there is an upper entrance, close that. If there's an upper vent, close that because that gets the scent of these things out. The other thing is, excuse me, it says um, that I put a rabbit around with uh, two to one sugar syrup. Uh, if you do that, there's no reason that bees should be smelling that unless you've added honeybee healthy, hive alive, or something else that puts a scent in it that gets the attention of other bees. This is honeybee healthy. Some people say that by adding this to their sugar syrup, they've kicked off robbing. That's not been my experience. That's why we kind of have to look at the whole picture. Healthy colony? Yes or no. Upper vents or entrances? Closed. Landing board entrance? Small. Very small, in fact, for what you think they have or need in a lot of cases. But prevention is a pound of cure here because once robbing has begun on a hive and they know those resources are in there, getting them stopped later can be a huge problem. Okay. Now, so I started again, says that I put a robbing station out a thousand feet away. Robbing has slowed down, but I still see some robbers trying to get in. I have two 10 frame hives that are completely drawn and filled with bees. I don't know if that is considered strong colonies or not. Well, see the 10 frame single deep. I've had colonies go through winter that way, especially when I collected swarms late in the year in the month of September. I've hived them with resources, that's key, in a 10 frame, single deep, insulated inner cover, insulated outer cover, fondant if you have it, wrap it around if you don't, dry sugar. They don't rob for dry sugar, by the way. They rob for syrup if they can get to it. So they can survive in a single deep under those conditions, assuming they're queen right and that other, other parts of that equation are, are good. So the issue is, whenever the buckets get low, I get some robbing. I would like to feed my bees exclusively. So I take you back to my response to an earlier question, how to find out if you're feeding your own bees or not. Good luck trying to feed your bees exclusively when open feeding. You're basically open to wasps, hornets, and every kind of bee. I see bumblebees on there. I don't see any other native bees going after open feed. So I'm thinking of trying jar top feeding. My question to you is, will I get the same result? Robbing. Well, any feed that's available, once Robert's notes in there, if you do all the other things that I've described, inverted jar feeding works. It works just the same. This would work, for example. It only has these little openings in the center, sits over the hole. So it's not like there's a bunch of uh, resources for them to get to all at once. This provides a consistent resource over an extended period of time. So you got to stop the robbing first. Robbing screens are another thing to look at once robbing has begun. So those are the best options I can offer right now. And uh, robbing screens, some of the best robbing screens are by, again, by Be Smart Designs. They're those plastic white ones that you can pin right on, which means they're immediately available. Uh, you have them in your kit. Like if you see that robbing may be happening, you can put that on there, open the little top tab and pin them right to the front. 
and redirect that activity at the entrance. And those that are robbing will continue to try to get through those openings around the edges and things like that. So I think every backyard beekeeper should have some kind of robbing screen ready to go. Number eight, Rachel L. My husband and I have been keeping bees for about 10 years. We've kept bees in Top Bar, Langstroth, and Layens hives as of last year, and are sadly now down to only one Layens hive. We tried Dr. Leo's method of less inspections. It hasn't worked out well for us. We lost our queen about two months ago. We've requeened twice with Saskatras Queen and from Man Lake with no success. We introduced a frame of eggs from a friend's hive with no success. Upon this morning's inspection, we found no queen or evidence that she was there, and there are, and we are at a complete loss. There is a good bit of honey and bee bread in the hive. So bee bread is pollen stored in cells. And we released this latest queen last Monday. She looked healthy. We went right down onto the comb, and she was in her cage for about five days five days, obviously being fed by other workers. A dead attendant bee was blocking her exit, which we suspect is why she was still in the cage. There are so few folks nearby that use lay-in hives. I know you do live streams to answer questions. Perhaps you might be able to address this. Okay. Well, the bee that was in that, this is a Saskatras bee, so you did multiple Saskatras attempts uh, to restore that colony. So there's no eggs, I believe the description is. You need to look for the introducer frame of eggs, had no success. This is a tough one because if there were some eggs in there, my first thing I would suspect when they keep rejecting queens is that uh, they've got laying workers. That somehow there, there's pheromone in there that is causing them to reject the introduction of new queens. Because normally a queenless colony if you put in a mated queen, they smell that pheromone, her mandibular pheromone, right away, and they like glom onto her, and they start feeding. It is very common that when you get these uh, attendant bees that come packaged with the queen when they ship, uh, those can impact the acceptance and rejection of the queen. So, if you can get those workers out without losing the queen before you introduce the queen into that hive, I would highly recommend that you do that also. <clears throat> and that's for people that are listening. Obviously, it's too late in this circumstance. So the queen went in. She looked healthy. She went right down into the comb. Um, so we need to wait to see if she's going to do anything. But uh, this entire time, the number of bees in that hive have been reducing. So if there were any eggs in there, I would suspect laying workers. But since there's no eggs, that's not our circumstance. So I don't know what to tell you about the Saskatraz bees or the queens that you put in there. Uh, other than the attendant part, keeping them out, I would give her some more time and see what's going on. I think you've done all that you can do for that colony right now. If there were laying workers, we'd have to deal with that if you had eggs and cells. The other question I have to ask is, Do we are you good at spotting eggs in cells? Is there any chance there are laying workers present? If there are, you're going to have to deal with them before you can get a new queen introduced. Sometimes when you do things like A frame of eggs, 
I've uh, gone to resource hives that I have, and uh, those are nucleus hives with deep frames in them, and now they are 15 frames, so three sets of five. And I'll go in there, and instead of just putting one frame of eggs, if I suspect that things have gone south and that there's a chance that there are laying workers, for example, everything's a gamble when it comes to bees, but these are things that can work. An overwhelming change in the pheromone in the hive would be to put in two or three frames of brood. Now, it's late in the year to be doing this. So this is just information kind of to pocket away for future circumstances like this. But I would put in three frames of brood with their nurse bees all at once and kind of impose their pheromones on the residual colony that's non-productive right now. And then those remaining bees with some eggs in there and those they will produce new queens. Again, it's too late in the year to be allowing bees to take eggs, draw out queen cells when they hatch and produce replacement queens because now we're in October. So your chances are slight. This colony, I hate to give up on a colony, this one may be a loss. So, but you still have that queen in there roaming around. If she starts to lay, if they accept her and everything seems okay, um, then that might work out. That queen is only going to lay her eggs if the stimulus is there for her to do that. So that means there needs to be plenty of bee bread in there. There needs to be a nectar flow because if it's perceived that there's a dearth going on outside, um, queens sometimes withhold egg production. So that's the other end of it. She might be fertile and she might be capable of laying, but the stimulus to lay might not be present. So there's, there are a lot of moving parts to that, but I hope you'll keep us posted on that. Next question, number nine, comes from Bryce Bennett. Cornstarch in powdered sugar. Says here, my question is, I'm slipping in two. Do bees have a problem with cornstarch? And if they do, is the cornstarch in a powdered sugar shake harmful to the bees? Thanks for your time. Okay, so there are ways to count mites on your bees. So the sugar shake is what's being mentioned here. So if you do a sugar shake, let's say you had a cup here that you count mites with. You can scoop nurse bees into this and you can add powdered sugar in there, two tablespoons, whatever it is. And then they get all dusted up in there. You set them off to the side for a couple of minutes while they start their own grooming and everything. And then uh, you start shaking this to shake the mites off the bees because they're loosened up by the grooming that the bees are doing. They're also heating up their thorax and they're worked up kind of into a frenzy. But those bees are not dead the way they are when you use Dawn dish detergent, which is another method now, and of course, alcohol wash. So anyway, when you shake them off, the bees are grooming. They are going to consume some of the sugar, but guess what? It's not their main diet. <clears throat> and that's why I don't think cornstarch, which is added to confectioner's sugar, powdered sugar, uh, as an anti-clumping agent. So would that hurt the bees? Overall, I say no. And that's because you're not feeding them that every day. You haven't created a sugar syrup with it. So the cornstarch, uh, we don't have to be worried about whether cornstarch is good or bad for bees because I don't recommend feeding it to your bees. So sugar syrup, cane sugar, mix your syrup up with that and you won't even have to address cornstarch or corn syrup and things like that. 
So for me, sugar is safe and the amount of sugar that they're gonna eat when it comes to the powdered sugar that you're using for the sugar shakes to count your mites is not going to negatively impact your bees. Question number 10, Robert Spence. I had a split that was a 10 frame, 80% full of bees, and I treated with mite strips and added medium comb from honey frames that I had taken weeks before that the bees had cleaned up. The stronger colony nearby came in and robbed them viciously, leaving no stores as well as killing the brood. The colony absconded. I found them in my swarm tree and put them in a five frame, but they are only on three frames. The queen has not laid an egg in two weeks. Can I save them? Okay, so interesting this question ends up with, can I save them? What do you have to lose? You have three frames out of five. Sounds like they're in a nucleus box. And uh, I just let them ride it out. I put, you know, little underdog collections of bees in little boxes. You've got the boxes sitting around. They're not used. Otherwise, uh, you've got the frames. They're occupying three out of five. We've got the whole month of September for them to do something with that. This might, you know, trigger another question. Hey, Fred, how many bees do they need, you know, to survive? In other words, how many bees in the northern parts of the United States do they need to complete their, their social structure so that they can forage while nursing, while guarding, while making wax, while doing all these jobs that have to happen at the same time inside the hive? The bottom line is about 5,000 bees. So if you've got three frames, you might be on the verge of 5,000 bees. If it's three frames full of bees, that's over 5,000 bees. So you might have what you need, but you've got nothing to lose by letting them just try. If there's a queen in there and you've seen her and she's not laid an egg in two weeks, I go back to what I said on another one. Is there a dearth? Are the resources coming in that would stimulate them to expand? Because all these other triggers too, are they pulling new comb? Are they doing wax work? Are they investing in infrastructure? So unless resources are coming in for that to happen, for those triggers to be present, um, the other things don't happen. She's not gonna lay eggs when the nurse bees, in fact, sometimes the queen wants to lay eggs, but there's a dearth and the resources aren't coming in. So you know what the nurse bees do? They walk along right behind her and they eat the eggs she's laying. So it may not even be that the queen isn't producing eggs and trying, it may be that the nurse bees are going around saying, no, we don't have, we can't feed those. So they start eating them. So again, I hate to throw that in there, but that's another loop. But here's my take on it. Underdog colonies, you got boxes, everything's ready to go. Give them a shot. Let them go. See if they make it. I'm not going to be the one that says, uh, can I save them? I say you've got nothing to lose by trying. Unless you need the equipment for something else. So I say, give him a shot. Question number 11 comes from Emil Andrusco. <clears throat> I'm a second year beekeeper in Yardley, PA. PA is Pennsylvania, for those of you who are out of the country. We had a wet spring, but a very dry summer with numerous days in the 90s. I harvested 32 pounds from a single hive on July and 60 pounds from two different hives in August. 
Unlike last year, some of the Honey Super frames are uncapped, approximately a third. The water content is 16%, so that's good. Anything under 19, anything under 20 is probably acceptable. Under 19, it's never going to ferment. I was wondering if, in your experience, there are more uncapped honey frames when there is low rainfall. I was wondering if, in your experience, that there are more uncapped honey frames when there is low rainfall. I've also noticed that the honey flavor is more intense. Is this also a factor of low rainfall? Well, there's some things going on here. I hate to say this, but I would not have hauled all that honey off of those hives. When, where I am, in my part of Pennsylvania, northwest Pennsylvania, I wait until this time of year to pull the honey off because I can leave on exactly what they need for winter. We're close enough. So I don't pull like in July. I would not pull 60 pounds, 32 pounds. I don't harvest in July because there's too much unknown about what the year is going to continue to do. And a lack of rainfall directly impacts the quality and the amount of nectar that's going to be coming in and the bees ability to use pollen as well. So <clears throat> that is something you always, that's why when I talk about winter and getting your bees ready, they established that honey bridge, the way my hives are configured. The brood box is the bottom box. The next box is a super that they fill with honey. If that's not all honey, if that second box is half or two thirds brood and then it turns to honey, I put another box on that that gets filled with honey before I super, in other words, before I put anything on that I would be taking off later. So, and I now I know they have their winter resources. So if I took a couple of top boxes above that off or harvested, they still have what they need if things go bad. So, uh, the water content, the other thing is, is honey flavor more intense also due to low rainfall. The honey flavor comes from the floral sources that the bees are getting the nectar from. So, and we can't say the sometimes the lower rainfall results in less nectar, but of a higher sugar content. So, for example, we're in a rain deficit here where I am. But you know who's getting a fantastic harvest this year? The grape vineyards, so the grape owners. The grape farmers, they have a high sugar content. They have great grapes this year. So that's what happens. Less nectar, higher sugar content, but it wouldn't change the flavor and that's because once the bees bring it back into the hive, they're going to concentrate it anyway into a honey level. So once they turn it into honey, it's going to be, as described here, 16%. It's going to be below 19% usually. And uh, so once they turn it into honey, the honey gets its flavor from the floral source, not the amount of rainfall. So... Um, they need, uh, what do they need to do to cap their honey? The other thing is if it's still uncapped, they're still planning to keep filling that. And uncapped honey gets used first. So they need more honey to make more wax to cap it. So I can't really give a solid answer on that particular part of the question. Question number 12. This is from Nixa. Oops, Kevin in Nixa, Missouri. Never heard of that town in Missouri. Now the crux of my quandary, I jumped over, there's a whole bunch of explanation here. Today, while I was inspecting the second hive that was being robbed, 
I removed all the frames that were infested. Oh, this is small hive beetle infestation. And I saw the queen being mauled by a couple of robbers. And for that, by the way, is very rare. Robbing bees, mauling a queen. They have no incentive really to do that. So that was a very strange thing to see. Uh, do, 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 do. saw the queen being mauled by a couple of robbers. Unfortunately, I had my leather gloves on, and when I tried to save her, I caught her by a leg. And a few seconds later, she flew off of the glove and into the air. There goes a $40 bug, I thought to myself. And how is it that a queen is able to fly? Saddened by the loss, I went back to work, saving what I could of the hive. Not five minutes later, I spotted her once again in the hive. Hooray! I quickly got a queen clip and caught her in it, just as she was about to take off again. Now what? I have a queen still in her clip and a few hundred workers mixed with robbers in a nuke tub. My last hive is still weak and I'm unsure if I should take a frame of brood out of it to try to start over, especially this late in the year. What a quandary. What a quandary. Do you have any suggestions? Do I start again? in my insulated long lang and hope for the best to throw up my arms and say, this is a bad year for beekeeping, or do I do something else? Okay, well, queens can fly when they're not producing eggs. So if you've got a dearth and the resources are not coming in and the queen is not productive, queens withdraw egg production and expand egg production based on the stimulus that we talked about earlier. We have to have a lot of pollen coming in you have to have nectar and resources coming in because it's not so much what's stored in the hive that stimulates those behaviors as it is what's actively being brought in by the bees. So that's that part. And a queen. So then when she, of course, is not producing eggs, she's light enough to fly. This is what happens when an older queen is being driven off so they can swarm. They stop feeding her or they feed her very little and they exercise her. They chase her around and she's not laying eggs. And she's light enough so when they swarm out she can fly so mated queens often can fly and they often go into remission they stop producing eggs and therefore the brood can go into a broodless period even during extended periods of dearth so would you start over and throw up your hands here's what i would do pick the best queen you have two options here by the way i would combine the, i would combine these colonies together and when you do that, if one colony in one location is the one being robbed and the other one is not, you take that colony in the spot that's being robbed and they're the ones that you transfer over and put them on top of your colony that is not being robbed. Now, some people decide which queen they like the best and they kill off one of the queens and they combine the colonies. Others um, put both queens together and they let one of the queens prevail and the other not. Sometimes even the workers will attack the queen. So the queen that they don't like for the resident colony, they'll attack the uh, encroaching new queen. So you can combine them both together. You're combining their resources. And of course you need to put feed on that colony and everything else if you want them to survive. But I would take it away from the spot where the robbing is happening because robbers are gonna continue to hit the location. Once they know that resources are there, it's very difficult to get them to stop attacking that spot. So now we double the resources, double their numbers on a hive and uh, combine them and hopefully you get the best out of that. I would not this time of year 
take a hive that's also not super strong and pull a bunch of resources hoping to salvage a hive that is failing. Because there sometimes can be other reasons why they're failing. So uh, you need to take a careful look also at the brood condition, brood frames. Make sure that you don't have any kind of brood disease, for example. We don't want brood issues. For those that are watching right now, of course that's you. I mean, how would you not hear me? There is a field guide to honeybees and their maladies by the Penn State Extension Office. And the reason this just struck me, I had these sitting here, brood disease and things like that are all extremely well described here. This is pocket size, you can put that in your bee suit. Because you know what, brood disease is something that is very difficult for new beekeepers to recognize. And uh, a field guide like this, I have a stack of them here because I like to give them to people. Um, that's a fantastic resource for helping you kind of diagnose secondary issues that might be going on, you know, like when they're not laying, when the hive is in decline and all this other stuff. And if that's the case, and this is the reason I mentioned this, if there's any chance that this weaker colony that's in decline has disease, brood disease of any kind, then I wouldn't be combining that and potentially crashing the other colony as well. So, Keep his advice, Kevin, on how that goes. Number 13, Horizontal Langs by Rick Cote. Probably says Cote, I don't know, C-O-T-E. Uh, let's see here, I've enjoyed watching your vids. I value your opinion. Thank you for that. The beaks in my area are all old school and unfortunately, not open to new ideas, and I chose to try flow hives. I am now very interested in building a long lang. Both have been scoffed at by the local members, so getting help for info has been difficult. They do not like the flow hives, and they say that horizontal hives do not work here in the U.S. because our bees are vertical-minded. You have discussed the successful use of both, hence the reason I am reaching out to you. I want to say something about that right off the bat. There are, there was an article in uh, the American Bee Journal that just came out, and uh, they talked about this this kind of mindset where bee clubs, bee gatherings, bee organizations, beekeepers uh, pick a way to keep bees and shut the door on any alternate method for keeping bees. And the, the part here about bees are vertical-minded. In other words, uh, they're vertical-minded, don't bother with any horizontal format. Uh, so this is my thinking that I just want to share, and I hope it catches on to other small clusters of beekeepers, is when people have other methods of keeping bees, or if they have other philosophies about beekeeping, it's not a reason to close the door on that, compartmentalize them, and go find your own club that has Layens hive or long langstroth hives or flow hives for that matter. Uh, the biology of the bees are the same and the potential to learn from one another while you're using these other methods or housing your bees in a different configuration, we can all talk about and learn from one another about what works and what doesn't. And even if you're profoundly against some way of keeping bees, you know, I just hate that way of keeping bees. Uh, it wouldn't hurt you to learn about you know, maybe reinforcing why you think it's not a good idea. So you could listen to what they've got to say, and then you could be one of those I told you so people. Or you could lend your information to them 
and help them along with the biology of the bees, which remains constant. So vertical-minded bees here in the U.S. Well, honeybees are minded the same. Their biology is the same all over the world. So the bees that are here in the U.S. are not any different than uh, bees somewhere else. If they're honeybees, Apis mellifera, uh, then they have a like mind already. So helping people figure out the hive configuration that they're going to use is one of the reasons that we have bee associations, I would hope, uh, so that we can talk about, oh, you know what, vertical might be a little better, horizontal, you know, they might be challenged, you might have to insulate it more, or something like that. So anyway, I'll get off my stump on that, but uh, it was something that even the editor of the American Bee Journal talked about, um, how polarizing it is, and how weird it is that people close the door on potential knowledge. So anyway, number one, I live in North Carolina. And should I build it with two by material or is exterior three quarter plywood sufficient in my area? I don't like the plywood at all, by the way, personally. Um, I just got one of those Layens hives. I bought the best Layens hive from Dr. Leo. And this is not a negative review of Dr. Leo's quality of his products or anything like that. But that said, uh, they're made out of plywood, so his top-rated rate, lands hive, which is insulated with lamb's wool, sheep's wool, uh, the bottom of it was rippled. So the outer layer, the outer laminate of the plywood was detached and a little rippled on the bottom, which I thought, that's annoying. But of course, I painted the whole thing, and it's in service. It didn't impact the service of it, so it proved to be cosmetic. But I don't like plywood on beehives just because it has that potential to delaminate. So the choice between two by material, and this is just, he is asking for my opinion, so I'm just giving my opinion. Three quarter ply or two by material? Definitely two by material. Because if you're going to build a horizontal hive, there's no limit to how much that thing can weigh. You're going to set it up in one spot, it's going to stay there. And it's going to be five feet long or whatever, it's going to weigh a lot. So insulating, <clears throat> making it tougher, thicker, you know what's going to happen, storms are going to come through and that thing's not going to move one bit. So we had a big storm come through and blew over some of my taller hives, heavy winds. And while it was still raining, I was suiting up to run out there as soon as the wind broke so I could put these uh, bee boxes back together and everything. Uh, none of the Long Langstroth, the Lands, or any of those horizontal hives, they didn't budge at all. So they're storm strong. So two by material, definitely. Make them as thick as you want. Number two, it says, I'm looking to incorporate my flow frames into the hive. Now here's the part, see, I'm not a fan of that. But uh, that doesn't mean I don't want other people to try it. You could try flow frames in your horizontal hive. And I did respond already to this person, but... Uh, so I wanted to know about the entrance placement. Should I have one entrance at the end of the long side or put it in the center? The key question is, if I have the entrance in the middle, will bees go in both directions? To the left for the flow frames and the other direction for brood and stores. Okay, so here's the thing. The configuration horizontal or vertical for me would be unchanged as far as the organization of resources inside the hive. So when we have the horizontal hives, I like to have one entrance at the end. And here where I live, that entrance faces south and the end is on the eastern end because 
when I set up boxes and I have boxes facing every direction so I can observe how they do things based on the weather and orientation of the hive. They always seem to start their resource building and their brood building on the eastern side of the hive. And then they build out. And that's even with the entrance in the middle on a standard landing board of a vertical Langstroth hive. They'll start, if we have 10 frames, they'll start to build towards the east first and then towards the west last. So, and they do this over and over, year after year. So when I set up my horizontal hives, the entrance is on the southeast corner of each horizontal hive. And then what they do is they concentrate their brood at that end, and then they build out, much as described before, they have their pollen resources, pollen and honey stored together, and then eventually nothing but honey, even without a queen excluder. So if I were going to put flow frames in this configuration, they would probably be about midway through the horizontal hive configuration, and I would have the single entrance at the eastern southeast corner of your hive. Because and I recently did an inspection video, so this week, so if you want to check it out. We have to go to the extreme of how many frames of brood they might have. So you might go out 10 frames before you hit nothing but honey. And so this is a problem for me when it comes to the horizontal hive configuration, if you're going to put flow frames in there. And I'm just going to say, me personally, I wouldn't do it. But I understand people wanting to because it's the potential to get honey out easy without going through extraction and crushing and straining and all the other stuff. Why not? But the physical shape of the interior surface of your hive where your frames hang and everything else will be different for those flow frames. So in other words, one of the beautiful aspects of a horizontal hive is as the brood comes out, as you need more frames, just add them on and you build as they go and you have a following board. And uh, that becomes, as far as the bees are concerned, that follower board is the extent of the hive cavity. And then as they fill all that up, you can move things out by moving that board. You can't do that if you're using flow frames, because now you have to have a divot cut out specific for these flow frames. Now, if you end up with brood right up against the flow frames, you run the risk of them, the queen laying in plastic frames that are designed for flow supers. Now, so the other part of that is you would have to put in a queen excluder to keep that from happening. I don't like queen excluders in horizontal hives, just a personal preference. Slows things down. It's in the way. I don't like it. <laughs> so, but if you're going to put your flow frames in there and you're going to want your piece to use that, you're going to need a queen excluder uh, because you can't slide those flow frames further down if they decide to do brood there. The other thing is... I'm not a fan of intermediate vents along the length of that hive because when you add additional tiny vents or entrances down that cavity length, uh, the bees have the potential then to, of course, brood drones back in there, for example, uh, because they won't do that where there isn't a, a open airflow, for example. So mine, again, are all at one end. And the Layens hives that I bought, I have two now from Horizontal Hive, Com, which is Dr. Leo. Uh, they're identical. They come with three openings. So I keep the other two closed. Only have the one in the end. And they are super productive beehives. And the Long Langstroth, the same. Extremely productive. Lots of honey. So anyway, 
If I have the entrance in the middle, the bees go in both directions, that's a gamble. I would put it at the end. And uh, I think they would, if you had your entrance in the middle, you can try it if you want to and close the entrances on either end or didn't have any other entrances, uh, they would go towards the warmer side in the morning first. That's just my educated guess. So that's my answer for Rick of CNC Apiary. Number 14. That's a long one. Sorry. This comes from Erno. It says, uh, I have two 10-frame boxes, one flow hive, seven-frame super on top of those. So one brood and the other box is full of honey, also capped. The top box, flow hive super, is not capped, and I don't use queen excluders. How can I winterize my hives with three boxes and reduce the boxes, take the super off, with some honey in it so that they can better cluster and protect themselves? By the way, the flow hive from Australia linked you to ask this question about winterizing in cold climate. Uh, I had ventilation on top, but that creates condensation. I have to pull out, I have the pull out trays on the bottom and they survived last winter, but it was a lot of condensation in one of my hives. Should I use burlap or wood shavings and close the top ventilation, even if it's inside my building? I put granulated sugar in my feeders, and but they didn't touch it. I know it's a lot of questions, but thank you for all your time. Okay, so we've got a 10-frame brood box, standard Langstroth. A second 10-frame brood box that they filled with honey. And then uh, the third is the flow super, and we got to get the flow super off for wintertime because we can't have the bees moving up there into the flow super in the wintertime, clustering in there, because what are they going to do come February? They're going to be producing brood, and they can do it in those flow frames. So I'm going to take Erno back to my earlier discussion. I'm also going to put a link for this one, too, how to winter your flow hives, uh, because we definitely pull those off. This time of year, the numbers, as we get into the end of September, the beginning of October, the numbers inside the hive should start to condense. So that's when, while you still have warm days ahead, you need to pull off uh, and condense your hives. So, and the reason I say that is because once we pull that flow super off, uh, or any honey super for that matter, that you're taking off for winter, uh, they need time and they need some warm weather in order to reseal and propolize all those joints to get themselves ready for winter. I also answered the other part of this. Um, I'm sticking now to one method when it comes to winter time. I would not have any upper vents, no upper entrances, and I would have an insulated inner cover that has some kind of face on it. So if you're making your own and you're putting, you know, two inch pink uh, rigid foam board or something like that for your insulated layer, I would have, you know, a wooden bottom to that, like my, um, what I call feeder shims in the past that I've made. Uh, you can insulate those and then that becomes the surface on the inside. Don't let your bees have direct contact with the polystyrene or they'll just chew it up. So, but that's, that's what I'm doing. It works so well, I'm not going to fiddle with that going forward. And uh, I can build a lot of things for my hives. And so I built these Feeder shims that worked really well. They have integrated inner covers. They have space underneath of them. So if you wanted to put fondant or something like that, it has room for it. 
and insulating those makes all the difference because we have a competition you know there's a heat bubble that forms inside your hive when there's no venting because the warm air can't vent out so it cycles down the sides and then the condensation occurs below your cluster and i get to see this in the observation hives you get to see that they keep their top area warm that a ring of condensation forms below the cluster near the entrance because that's the only vent it's the only entrance it's the only place where there's an air exchange and then insulation at the top is the most critical. And if you insulate the sides of your hive, here's also what I suggest. Make sure that the superior insulation is on the top and that there's somewhat thinner insulation going down the sides so that that dew point is achieved down here somewhere, not higher up. So we don't want airflow through the top. But yeah, you pull that off and... Uh, your bee, the numbers should be going down anyway. And Erna comes from Montana. So I hope that helps. But I'm getting kind of the same questions over and over. So that is, uh, that's my response, is that this is what works. I'm in the snow belt. It gets cold. We don't get 20 or 30 below here. So I want to, let me backpedal a little bit and say this. If I lived, you know, and north dakota somewhere i don't know wherever it gets really extreme i would be looking at a different hive configuration for sure i would insulate them and yes even in a building if that building's not heated absolutely <clears throat> so i would definitely if i were further north and i had extreme cold temperatures for extended periods of time i would be looking at more insulated hive equipment but here where i am it works perfectly not insulated sidewalls insulated covers that's all i needed and they were doing fantastic. Question number 15, final question of the day, and this comes from Philip Thomas. For your next week's segment, could you address the question, if possible, do honeybees use a LIFO, last in, first out system for honey consumption? By that I mean, do honeybees tend to consume the last in honey first before the first in honey? The implication is if they do this, they would consume honey in the third box super before the second box super, thus preserving the second box super for honey for winter and thus decreasing the beekeeper's honey harvest, yes or no. If this is the case, when is the optimal time to harvest, assuming the super being harvested is rather full? So we're in, this is prime harvest time right now, if you've got a good nectar flow. We're in the middle of goldenrod right now, and UPS truck pulled up just before I came in to do this today. And I said, can you smell the honey in the air? And she could. It was amazing. So we have, right now, we're getting to this week. The end of this week is my harvest time. Uh, because then they have the rest of September to replenish that. Now the first in, yes. That's why any uncapped honey is available to the bees for immediate consumption. So a couple of things happen. One, the brood box. Then we've got that super that I talked about before that is their winter store. There is often a little arc up in there and sometimes they'll fill those cells. And this comes around uh, when people are talking about, oh, bees are going to get honey bound at the end of the month and everything. What should I do if I'm not adding boxes at the end of the year? I don't care if they get honey bound at the end of the year because we get these really cold nights and honeybound, for those of you who don't know, the bees are filling every available cell with nectar and honey, 
right? So they're capping it. <clears throat> or they're just filling the cells and they're super shiny when you look at the hive and they're just, it, they're full of honey and they're not capped. The bees on the first really cold night will be consuming that. And then guess what? As soon as they consume those cells, they've got a space for the queen to lay eggs. Surrounded by food and resources, how much more convenient could that be? So, yeah, they do that. And this is also a frustration for some new beekeepers who do an inspection and look at that top super and they see all this uncapped honey, but it's loaded and they're heavy. And then they check it again a week later and we had a few cold nights and now it's two-thirds of what it was. So definitely they are consuming and filling, consuming and filling, and hopefully filling more than they consume. And bees are hoarders. That's why they work as far as providing surplus honey for us. So yeah, those uncapped top frames, that they're, they're the last things to finish out. And then as the year progresses and they find out there's no more resources, they start to cap everything. And that's why you'll even see cells that are only a, a fraction of the depth they should be. And they're all capped off. So yeah, uh, last in, first out. That's absolutely correct. So that's it for today. So I'm going to give you some, we're in the fluff section now. We're just going to talk for kicks and giggles. And uh, I want to suggest some things. So one thing that we talk about that I've talked about in the past, look at that. It's Morton sea salt, Morton natural sea salt. And the reason I bring this up right now is because other than providing my fresh water garden hose oasis is what I call it. Bees are all over that right now. And uh, I take little quart yellow plastic jars, the same ones I do all my testing with. And I put those out and I use one teaspoon of sea salts to a quart of fresh water. And I fill jugs of that and I go out there and they fill all those things. Right now, the sea salt feeders are being visited heavily by the bees. So that's showing me that their demand for mineral content and stuff like that is up there. How did I arrive at this Morton Sea Salt? It's one of the cheapest that you can get. You get it all over the place. Amazon, everywhere they sell it. Because I did comparisons, Celtic sea salt, pink Himalayan salts. I got all of the best salts that everybody said to test, and we found out what the bees went after the most. So Morton sea salt was a tight second with Himalayan pink salt, which is not sea salt. It's just taken from the Himalayan mountains. So it's considered pure because it was back at a time before there was pollution all over the world and everything else. Before everybody discovered ATVs and side-by-sides and snowmobiles and every other way to put stuff into the air that shouldn't be there. Anyway, put those out. Mix sea salts with your water. Put it out in drinkers in constant locations, by the way. So the bees know where to go for their specific things. So when you've got your feeders out, keep them in that spot. So fresh water, always at the same time. Please don't try to add sea salt to your sugar syrup. Leave your sugar syrup as, for those of you who need that, for colonies that are so behind that they're crippled that they may not make it, um, fresh water with sugar syrup only. Don't try to add a whole bunch of other stuff. The other thing I want to talk about that we started using last, I believe the year before last, Hive Alive, this is one of the things, I'm not a fan of uh, feed enhancement, by the way. Uh, when it comes to, and I'm open about it, you know, all the other essential oil mixes that are marketed for bees that boost their brood and everything else, it's the sugar syrup that helps them boost their brood. 
But there was one thing when we had to do studies uh, at Cornell, when we were all going through master beekeeper school, you had to write papers on different things. And uh, Hive Alive is one of the things that had scientific underpinning showing that it worked against Nozema. So that's why I use Hive Alive. Honeybee healthy and stuff, not against it. It just doesn't do uh, the feed stimulating that it's supposed to do. So what this does is extends your sugar syrup. So if you're putting sugar syrup on somewhere and they're not consuming at a high rate and you don't want your sugar syrup to spoil, if you put a teaspoon of this per quart, uh, your sugar syrup's gonna last a long time and it won't, it won't spoil. So it's good for that. But when I put out sugar syrup without Honeybee Healthy, without Beekeeper's Choice, without Pro Health and all the other stuff, uh, they went for sugar syrup by itself. And some people say, well, sugar syrup with just water in it, the bees can't find it, they can't smell it. Bees find water. Bees, scout bees, are looking everywhere at every little contrasting surface, and they land and they taste test things, and they find sugar water with nothing in it. So the only advantage, in my opinion, of something like honeybee healthy is to extend your sugar syrup so you don't get the black mold. Uh, so that lasts longer, but the only thing that has an impact, and the reason I'm mentioning it now, is after you've got your honey supers off and we're in emergency mode for the colonies that are light that might need help, and uh, you're going to put out feeding stations and things like that. I don't know if I would add this to my sugar syrup that I'm putting at a feeding station, uh, because this is something you definitely would be feeding your own bees, because you're going to spend money to get it. Hive Alive helps with Nozema. There was uh, Nozema apis back in the day, and then, then after that it was uh, uh, Nozema serana, maybe, serenae. And that was the one that it worked on. Nozema attacks the microbiome of your bees, impacts their digestion, can make your bees anemic. We focus a lot on varroa destructor mites, but there are other things working on your bees, and that's something you can just add to your syrup and help out. Will this make your sugar syrup an appetite stimulant? Nope. Once again, Hive Alive, and if you put uh, sugar syrup by itself, one to one, one to one, and then you add Hive Alive to one, they're going to go for the clear sugar syrup without the Hive Alive first. So it's definitely a medication. And I have a page on my website that leads you to the information about the studies on that. So salt, because they're after that this time of year, their demand for salt and minerals is not the same throughout the year. So right now it's in high demand. Uh, condense your resources. So if you've got empty frames in your hives and stuff, now start looking at maybe pulling the frames that weren't drawn and putting full frames in, condensing from upper boxes. And uh, if you've got queenless colonies, this is the time to find out about it because now you can combine those with queen right colonies and they're very accepting. I've never had this big battle between the colonies when I've combined them and I use the newsprint method, newsprint over the bottom box. The weaker colony goes on top, they go right through the newsprint and uh, they combine. So what else? Oh, the shout out. I don't know if I gave a shout out the last time, but this one goes to Nature's Image Farm. And the reason is because uh, he had a loss of bees when a storm came through. But the good thing about the video that I'm going to link down in the video description is it shows the resiliency, a way of looking at beekeeping to where you don't quit on beekeeping. 
Uh, it's very common for new beekeepers to stop the practice of beekeeping within the first three years. And I think a lot of that happens because when people first get their bees, all your equipment's new, your bees are new, your queens are less than a year old, and there's a lot of beginner's luck that can happen and you can get all glowy and happy about it and you just can't wait to give people honey from your beehives and tell people that you're a beekeeper and everything else. Within the second year, things can become a little challenging and you realize you need storage for all your beekeeping equipment and now it starts to seem like it, this could be work. And then by the third year, if you've had diseases or things like that present in your colonies or you've got problems with your bees, they're aging a little bit and your equipment might be getting a little older and uh, you come into that third, second spring and uh, find out that you had a 90% winter die off or something that's so disheartening that some people quit. But the reason I put down Nature's Image Farm is he had 50 beehives get completely wiped by a storm and they blew them across a field. So I don't know how far, 75 feet, 100 feet. Uh, but that's my shout out. I'm going to put a link to that video. I want you to watch it because the mindset of, yeah, we took a hit. Now let's get everything back on track. Let's get the beehives back together and let's start looking forward. He had uh, planned ahead, kind of, and he banked some queens and things like that. I know this is beyond the scope of new beekeepers, but it's the spirit of beekeeping that I wanted you to kind of get from that video. So that's my shout-out for today. I hope that you benefited from something we talked about today, and I want to thank you for spending your time with me. And those of you who are driving, and uh, you're truck drivers, and you spend a lot of time on the highways, and you listen to my videos, listen to the podcast on Podbean, The Way to Be. Uh, I appreciate that. And uh, when the people tell me that they listen to the podcast, I'm always surprised and uh, grateful. Thanks for being here. Have a fantastic weekend. <music>